The scripture reading tonight I want to take from Revelation chapter 3. The book of the Revelation chapter number 3. There's a pastor that I have listened to a couple of times in recent days. And he's been reading with his congregation through this book. But he insists on telling them that he wants them to turn to the book of the Revelations. And I always think there is no such book as the book of Revelations, plural. Because you'll see in the very first verse of this book that it's called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And that being the case, we might understand that the word revelation has to do with unveiling. And that might seem a bit strange to you because the book of Revelation has a lot of things in it that are hard to understand. And folks often think, well, that's a bit of a misnomer, revelation. It seems to me there's a lot of things that are hidden. But here's a secret to getting blessing from the book of Revelation. Look for Christ in the book. Because if you look for Christ in the book of Revelation, you will find him there. Because that's what the book is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. For example, and I don't want to make this my sermon tonight, but there are over 20 references to the Lamb of God, to the Lamb in Revelation. It's a wonderful book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Lord is revealed here, but we're going to read in chapter 3 and verse 1. And the Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name, before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Can I ask you please just to stand with me for a moment for prayer? And we will ask the help of the Lord in the message tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for all that has taken place here today, for every song that has been sung in praise to Thy name, for every prayer offered, for the Word of God that has been read and preached, for the offerings that have been given, 
for the praise that has arisen to thee from our hearts as well as our lips. And today, Lord, we come to the end of another Sabbath or near it, and we want thee to meet with us afresh in thy word. Speak to us, Lord, through this precious truth of thine. We remember that lovely verse of that hymn, and we make it our prayer. Master, speak, thy servant heareth. Waiting for thy gracious word, longing for thy voice which cheereth. Master, let it now be heard. I am listening, Lord, for thee. What hast thou to say to me? Lord, come and bless thy word to us. Give help to the preacher and to the hearers. And let the name of our Lord Jesus Christ be exalted and glorified in all that is said. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may know that in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, there is a record of seven letters, seven epistles, given to seven individual churches in Asia. In chapter 3, one of those churches is the church at Sardis. We learn this from verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write. Now that's a common occurrence in these letters. Each letter begins with the same type of language. Unto the angel of the church. The word angel in the Greek language can be translated either angel or messenger. It's the word angelos. Angel or messenger. And what is in view here is not a heavenly angel, but an earthly messenger. Indeed, the minister of each church. And you'll notice that there's one minister per church. Unto the messenger, if you like, of the church in Sardis, right. And then you have this message. The churches may be variously described. And I think that one word that comes to mind when you consider the church in Sardis is the word lifeless. It is a lifeless church. And we say that because of what's recorded here in verse 1 of Revelation 3. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Now, I would say that these words could have an application oftentimes to individuals. There are people, and we've all met them, who claim the name of a Christian, but they do not possess the character nor the nature of a Christian. They have a profession of faith, but they have no possession of Christ. They have a reputation, perhaps, but not the reality. And that's a tragic position to be in. To have a name of being alive, but to actually be dead spiritually. However, what is true of the individual may also sadly be true of a collective body. The corporate body, the congregation, the church. I would suggest that many a church 
is dead while it lives. That was obviously the case at Sardis at the time of which we read here. They showed much activity as though they were living, but in reality they were stricken with coldness and death. If you consult history books, you will find that as a city, Sardis had an illustrious history. The early history of Sardis particularly was wonderful, but the city gradually fell on evil days and lost something of its earlier renown. The writer R.H. Charles commented, quote, Like the city itself, the church had belied its early promise. Its religious history, like its civil history, belonged to the past, unquote. The commentator William Hendrickson observed that, quote, At the time the apocalypse was written, book of Revelation, Sardis was facing decay, a slow but sure death. In 17 AD, the city was partially destroyed by an earthquake. Thus, again and again, the self-satisfied and boastful inhabitants of Sardis had seen destruction coming upon them as a thief in the night, most suddenly and unexpectedly. Sardis was sinking into spiritual stupor. Sardis enjoyed a good reputation, but it did not deserve this reputation. Sardis was a very peaceful church. It enjoyed peace. That is, the peace of the cemetery. Christ tells these dead church members that they must wake up and must remain awake and must make firm the rest of the things that are on the verge of death. Unquote. The church at Sardis was noted for its empty forms and ceremonies, the religious customs and services, but the real essence of life was lacking and the reality was gone. The church had the name Christian, Christian church, but its Christian life was dying inwardly. And I do believe that that serves as a warning to other congregations of the Lord's people. It is all too possible in any and every age to be effectively a lifeless church. As one man commented, this description fits much of so-called Christendom today. A great deal that bears the outward semblance of Christianity is something garnished by human reformation but empty of divine life. Thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Let's notice what Christ said to the church at Sardis, and let us seek to apply it as a warning to all churches, even to our own. First of all here, the Lord spoke about a strong profession. And it was a strong profession. Thou hast a name that thou livest. They had a name to live. What the Lord was saying here was, you have the name of being alive, and yet you're dead. Obviously, the church had acquired a name, a reputation, if you like, that had spread far and wide. Perhaps, we don't know, it may have been quite large, 
It may have been growing. It was very well regarded in the city and the neighborhood, perhaps. It was probably known by the other six churches in the province for its vitality. A church that was very much alive. There's no mention here, for example, of the Nicolaitans or of the doctrine of Balaam or of the influence of Jezebel and her followers, as you have in some of the other churches. It seems to have had a name for orthodoxy in its teaching. And there could well have been, though again I don't know, a lot of activity going on there. But its works were not living works. There may have been, for example, no lack of money in the church or manpower or members with various gifts and talents. But they were not living up to their name. They had a name to live. But they were dead. And so it can be in any church. The great Robert Murray McShane of Scotland actually preached a message on this portion dealing with the church at Sardis. And in that message he said this, All the people in Sardis may have gone to church and although there are thousands in this place who have not even the name to live, who never enter the house of God, still there are many of you who come to church who attend the prayer meeting and you have a name to live and yet you are dead. And that was very straightforward preaching by the saintly McShane. You see, a name is worthless unless living works are present to back it up. It's a tragedy when individual people have a Christian profession only, the name without the nature, claiming to be something that they are not. Their Christianity actually being a sham and a veneer. Their works are dead works because they have no living faith in Christ. But it's also all too possible for churches and denominations to have a name only. A cloak of an empty reputation. For instance, a church might have an illustrious history of mighty works and a faithful stand. It's hard for me to disguise the fact that I come from Northern Ireland, even though I've lived in the States for 23 years. Most people seem to think I've got an accent. I've lived long enough uh, to actually experience a lot of the history of the Free Church in Ulster. I was born into the Free Presbyterian Church. As a baby, I was dedicated in the Mount Marion Church by Dr. S.B. Cook one Sunday after Sunday school. I later went back to be the minister of that church. I've seen a lot of things in my lifetime. I sat under the ministry of Dr. Paisley for all those years until I entered the ministry myself. And I know the stories and I know the history. And I know what the Free Presbyterian Church was in those early days in Ulster. At least from the very early 60s onwards. But you know, our church could actually be known for what it was and not necessarily for what it is. 
The church can even retain its historic doctrinal position and statements and a confession of faith and articles of faith which are very sound and scriptural but yet not at all be recognizable as such a church today. It's possible. How many churches have a great name, a wonderful heritage, and a glorious past, but are now effectively dead? We have a booklet that we give to prospective members of our churches. It's called Separated Unto the Gospel. It's called that because of the profession that our church makes of being a separatist church. Separated under the gospel. That is a reputation. That is a name. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. We could be referred to as a separatist church. We could, could be referred to as a soul-winning church. We could be referred to as a Bible-believing a Bible scriptural church. But that's about it. It could be a reputation without the reality. So that's the first thing that we want to think about. A strong profession is here. Thou hast a name, or if you like, a reputation of being alive. But then the second thing that we want to notice is a sad pretense. Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Notice here that it's not something that the Lord holds out just as a possibility. Maybe you have a name to live, but you're really dead. It doesn't say that. It says, Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Appearances can be deceptive. I don't know if you know what a dummy writer is, but in some urban areas of the United States on heavy volume traffic highways, and you know this in Phoenix, there are what is known as HOV lanes, high occupancy vehicle lanes. A high occupancy vehicle lane, also known as an HOV lane, or a carpool lane, or a diamond lane, or a two plus lane, is a restricted traffic lane, which, as you know, is reserved at peak travel times or longer for the exclusive use of vehicles with a driver and one or more passengers. I think this was near Washington, D.C. Sounds about right for the part of the country that this kind of thing would happen. There was a smart aleck driver he thought he was smart anyway, who was caught on one of those HOV highways with a mannequin, a tailor's mannequin, a tailor's dummy as we used to call it, riding in the passenger seat fully clothed with a wig. And apparently when he was caught by the police, he admitted to having done it for months until a very wise police officer traveling in the next lane to him had a look over and thought, that's not a real person. <laughs> now, that's a funny story. 
And if I'd have been the policeman, I think I would have laughed myself to death, as well as giving him a ticket. But, see, the reality was that this passenger in the car had a name to live, but was actually dead. was not a living person at all. But as far as all the other fellow travelers on the highway was concerned, here's a guy driving and there's a passenger. Personally, or even collectively as a congregation, could it not be the case that we have a profession, however strong, without the reality of spiritual life? Revelation 3 verse 2 says this, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. There were works being done in that church, but they were an empty shell without body. Hollow and empty works. Perfect works are those that are done from the heart, and though imperfect in themselves, they're acceptable to God because they're offered to Him through the perfect merits of Christ. That's why the Lord accepts our worship. That's why He accepts our service when it's offered through Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 speaks of this. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, note this, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Our praying, our preaching, our worship, our service, our witness, It's wholly imperfect. We know it's imperfect. But it's acceptable to God because of the merits of Jesus Christ. But sadly, in Sardis, there was the outward show, the energy of the flesh, but the inward spirit was missing. We're reminded of what the Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 over and over again. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! The Pharisees were known for their outward show, for their outward appearance. By the way, the word hypocrite that the Lord used, Hippocrates in the Greek, it was a word that originally referred to someone acting a part on a stage, usually wearing a mask. Wearing a mask. Outward appearances. They're always deceptive. And so this church at Sardis was really a spiritual graveyard. It was dead. Someone put it like this. Its works were beautiful grave clothes, which were but a thin disguise for this ecclesiastical corpse. But the eyes of Christ saw beyond the clothes to the skeleton. It was as dead as mutton. Folks, it's all too easy to play church, to go through the motions, to erect a facade, which men usually can't see through, but God can and does see through. We may have read those words concerning the Lord's rejection of the brothers of David for position of king. Remember how Samuel went? to the home of Jesse. He's looking for a king and oh, he was greatly taken with this big fella, Eliab. Oh, what a fine specimen this guy is. That's what he thought. 
1 Samuel 16 and verse number 6. It came to pass when they were come that he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He must be the man. He's got to be the one. Look at him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Now, if there's a verse in the Bible that has ever been misappropriated and misquoted, it's this one. You know the old saying, come to church just as you like, and of course leave just as you can. Doesn't matter. Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord's not worried at all what you appear like on the outside. That is not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible has a lot to say about the outward appearance. In fact, when our Lord Jesus Christ was condemning the Pharisees, he condemned them for being right on the outside, but being rotten on the inside. And here's what he said the solution was, thou hypocrite, cleanse First, not only, cleanse first that which is on the inside, that the outside of them also may be clean. See? The outside matters. It does. That's what people see. But the point that is being made here is that the Lord doesn't just see like men see the outward appearance and nothing else. The Lord sees beyond that. He sees further than that, right into the heart. Man looketh on the outward appearance. Everything seems to be wonderful. This person appears to be alive. This church appears to be alive. But the Lord looketh on the heart, that which is within. Now it is important for us as we come to the message in Sardis that the Lord gave to understand the nature of the death that is referred to here. Revelation 3 verse 4 Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You see, the death that's referred to here is actually dirt. There was uncleanness underneath their pious exterior. Spiritual defilement is actually spiritual death. The historian Herodotus said that the inhabitants of Sardis had over the course of years gotten a reputation for lax moral standards and open licentiousness. So their name was really a lie. They were nominally Christ, but not actually. Their profession was not genuine. It was a pretense. And isn't it a sad, sad thing, a tragedy indeed, to think of a church full of nominal Christians. And I'm going to tell you that not just in America, but certainly in America, there are congregations just like this today. And Sardis of old was such a church, a dead church. Surely that's a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron, isn't it? A dead church. That was as alive, but it's dead. But it's all too possible to be filled with deadness even while we profess to be alive. I know that we might be part of a living, vibrant fellowship. 
Do we profess to love the Lord, but we love the world? 1 John 2 verse 15 contains these words, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That sounds like old-fashioned fundamentalism, doesn't it? But that's, that's Bible. That's what that is. That's Bible. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do we say we want to be conformed to the image of Christ, but are actually in daily practice conformed to this world? There is one translation of Romans 12, verse 2, which is really right on the mark. It says here, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that has been translated this way, do not allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. That's a really good statement. Be not conformed, but be transformed or changed. Be not conformed to this world. Don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. That's what the world will do if you allow it to do it. May God give us reality as individuals. May God give us reality as a church and make us a living testimony for Him. A sad pretense. But then there's a serious possibility. A serious possibility And the possibility is that we'd be guilty of the sin of hypocrisy. We've already given the definition of it. Hypocrisy is really make-believe. One man called hypocrisy Disneyland Christianity. Or Disney World, if you like that better. Christianity. It's not real. It's all make-believe. My wife and I went to Florida for our 25th anniversary and we happened to get free tickets from a friend for Disneyland, is it? Whatever the one is in Florida. And it was very interesting. You could see why little kids' eyes would be popping out of their heads when they see all of these characters that they've only seen in cartoons. They have a parade there, which is amazing. They have all these characters, Goofy and Mickey Mouse and all those wonderful old Disney characters and then all these modern weird ones. They have all them there and the kids are just in heaven. But you know the thing about it? It's all make-believe. It's just imagination run wild. Disneyland Christianity. To be a hypocrite is to assume a role that is not real. You know, children, when they play with one another, they do that all the time, don't they? You pretend you're so-and-so, and I'll be such-and-such. That's what they do. That's what we did when we were little. We watched our daughters do it. Now we're watching our granddaughters doing the same thing. Make it, Rachel used to say, make it that you're such and such, and I'll be such and such. And they assumed those roles, and they thought for those moments that they really were those people. 
doctors and nurses and all that stuff. Let's pretend that I'm such and such. Isn't that what's involved when you claim the name but you don't possess the reality behind the name? It's the difference between the outward appearance and the inward reality. And the awful thing about hypocrisy, folks, is this. It's deliberate. It's not a mistake. It's deliberate. The actor on the stage knows full well that he is not what he pretends to be. He's an actor. And our Lord Jesus Christ actually quoted from the book of Isaiah, but the original scripture says this, Isaiah 29, verse 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips to honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. This people draw near with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's what the Lord Jesus said when quoting that verse. Isn't that what Paul had in mind when he said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof? Or as he wrote to Titus, verse 16 of chapter 1, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. The form without the power, the name without the life. That's a serious possibility. And if you examine the words of Christ concerning the Pharisees, and he called them hypocrites, it's clear that they did what they did as a deliberate attempt to fool people. For example, the Lord Jesus talked about what they did in prayer. Look at those words in Matthew chapter 6. I'm sure we know them well. Take heed that you do not your alms, your charity before men to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. And when, but when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which saith in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Notice this, and when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. In verse 2, it is that they may have glory of men. In verse 5, it is that they may be seen of men. This is their desire. And it's all too possible for hypocrisy to permeate the life of any given church. And I'm not preaching this for any other reason other than to know that it is a possibility that it can happen to any church. It's all too possible for hypocrisy to permeate the life of a congregation. 
there can be hypocritical worship, the singing, the praying, and even the preaching. Yes, even the preaching can be marked by hypocrisy because it's not being done for the glory of God alone. May our worship always be sincere and without the slightest bit of pretense. Oh, that our works would be right toward God and done with a single eye to his praise and honor. And that brings me to the final thought here. I want to speak about a saving practice. The Lord said here to Sardis in verses 2 and 3, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. The Lord mentioned a number of things that needed to happen in Sardis if the situation was to be remedied. I just want to mention two of these. You'll notice in the first place what the Lord recommended for a dead or dying church. One was vigilance. Be watchful. I was just preaching recently, have been preaching for quite some time actually, over 70 messages on the Gospel of Mark, and I'm not done yet. But we've been in chapter 13 and and dealing with the subject of the second coming of Christ. And toward the end of Mark chapter 13, you have several mentions of the word watch. For example, in verse 33, take ye heed, watch and pray. The next verse he says that the Lord gave to every man his work. In the parable, he commanded the porter to Watch. Then verse 35, watch ye therefore. Verse 37, what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Watch. Watchfulness. Or be vigilant. Actually, the word here, be watchful, is equivalent to waking up. I heard that many a time when I was a young fellow when I needed to get up to go to school and I didn't feel like getting out of that warm bed. And I would hear the voice, waking up. The situation was not yet entirely hopeless at Sardis. And it's worth noting that the analogy is changed here from death to sleep. Interesting that, isn't it? You can't really appeal to a dead man to waken up. It seems that some at Sardis were sleepy rather than dead. And so the Lord calls upon them to rouse themselves from their heavy slumber and to be watchful. See, the idea is you have a name to live and you're dead. It's more that they were in a stupor. And I think that the the reference here to, to vigilance seems to be very appropriate for Sardis since that seemingly impregnable city had actually fallen twice to surprise attacks by invaders. The Persian Cyrus was the first of those, and Antiochus the Great was the second. There's a biblical encyclopedia that records that through their failure to watch, the Acropolis had been successfully scaled by a Median soldier in 549 B.C., 
and in 2.18 by a cretin. Several times in his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus warned his disciples to be watchful. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Vigilance. But then there's a reference to vitality and strengthen the things which remain. This is a word from Christ to the rest at Sardis. That group of people who had not given in, who had not lowered the standard, who were seeking to stand for that which was right. They had a name to live, and they were living. This is a word to that remnant at Sardis. God could use them to preserve the entire work of God there alive that was about dead. And actually, this word, strengthen the things which remain, if we had time, we could do a word study on that in the New Testament. The word for strengthening is used in a number of places in the Scriptures. Let me just mention two examples, Acts chapter 18 and Romans chapter 1. Acts chapter 18, verse 23. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Same word. The root of the word is the same. Strengthen the things which remain. Here they are, and they're being strengthened by the Lord's servant. And then Romans chapter 1 and verse 11. Once again, the idea is the same. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. The word is the same word. Being strengthened. Someone called this the duty of the church within the church. A robust remnant can strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. A dynamic minority of living and awakened Christians can, by prayer and love, preserve a dying church from utter extinction. And may we be among those God can use in strengthening the things which remain and are in danger of dying out. It has been said that new Christians are weak. They need to be strengthened. They are but babes in Christ and they need to be nurtured and loved. They are often wobbly and need to be established. Older, mature Christians have a great responsibility in the congregation to the younger ones. The stronger Christians must not despise the weak, but encourage and strengthen them by their example, their teaching, and their friendship. May God help us. May God keep us from dying out or allowing His cause to utterly diminish through our unfaithfulness. May our prayer be that which the psalmist prayed, strengthen, O God, that which Thou hast wrought for us. I noticed at the beginning of the service tonight, our sister was playing on the piano in the prelude. 
And the hymn that she was playing was about revival. And surely there's a need for revival in our day. Revive thy work, O Lord. Thy mighty arm make bare. Speak with the voice that wakes the dead. And make thy people hear. Revive thy work, O Lord. While here to thee we bow. May the Lord do that for us. For his glory. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank Thee for the challenge of Thy Word. We pray that we might take it to heart. O God, we pray that we might be part of that faithful remnant that will be used of God to preserve and to keep faithful the work of God. Lord, do not allow thy cause to die within our circles. O God, we fear lest that could happen. We've seen it happen in other churches. Lord, revive thy work among us. Send forth thy spirit. Give to us, Lord, the courage and the grace to stand up. Stand up for Jesus and to not be ashamed of his cause. Hear our prayer. We offer it in Jesus' name. Amen.